Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining me is Ken Wilson. Kent, what's going on, man? Not much. Just enjoying a nice Chinook here in Calgary. It was minus 30 for a few weeks, but it's about plus 10 now. So That's, a, that's quite the difference. Um, you know what? I'm, I'm really happy you're, you're on. Um, for people that might have just started tuning in this year or uh, don't remember, you were, I had you on last year to talk about the Calgary Flames. You uh, follow them pretty closely and, and write about them for Flames Nation. But I also really want to get you on because I just, for people that might not know, you're one of the true kind of hockey blogging OGs. I think that by the transit, transitive property, the you know, the person I and I think many, many others out there owe their career to in this industry just because if only for the fact that, you know, you, you, you're the one that hired Thomas Drance and he's the ones that, that hired me, for example, and sort of laid the foundation and sort of the rest is history. So, uh, I wanted to thank you for that. <laughs> My pleasure. It's funny because, yeah, I started as kind of the editor in chief at Nation Network years ago and, and so many people have kind of passed through those gates. Um, it was yourself, Thomas. Travis Yost wrote for a bit on NHL numbers, um, Eric Tulski, and, uh, you know, all the computer boys down in Florida now. So it's, yep. uh, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, and you still got, I mean, we shouldn't leave out Jonathan, Jonathan Willis as well. Oh. He's one of the, one of the OGs as well. Um, I feel like I haven't been able to say the following statement in a, in a long, long time, but I legitimately mean it when I say that the Calgary Flames are fun, interesting, and appear to be legitimately good. Um, what a time to be alive, I guess. Yeah. Well, I would argue that back when they were a Cinderella team a couple seasons ago, they were definitely fun and interesting. They weren't legitimately good, but uh, it was at least a fun season to be a fan. And and it was a nice sort of breath of fresh air, even though it was more illusion than anything else. But this year, yeah, it looks like it might be a bit more legitimate. Yeah, when I was when I was prepping for the show, I kind of looked back at their uh, their year by year history over the past decade or so, and I mean that 2014 2015 is the only time they've made the playoffs in the past. That'd be like seven years or something like that. And and you know, as you laid out, they they probably shouldn't have been there. They're they're riding some pretty pretty fortunate percentages, and they won a playoff round. But that's just because they were playing sort of an equally fraudulent team in the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I was looking at their at their at their years, I. I was kind of blown away by that 2008-2009 team where, you know, it was one of Aginla's final elite seasons and 
Camilleri was at a, a point a game, and I think even more noteworthy than that is that he managed to stay healthy all year, which was the important part of it. And and you know they were getting like north of like fifty five percent of the shots or something like that at five on five, and unfortunately they just got wretched goaltending from Kiprasov and had the misfortune of just drawing the Blackhawks in the first round. Yeah, that was a, a frustrating season in hindsight because, as you say, it was one of is one of the best teams the organization had put together uh, in years and and since. And just a few things went wrong that season. So, as you say, Kiprasov had one of his worst seasons as a as an NHL goal goalie, at least for the Flames. Mm-hmm. Um, they went out and they got Ole Jokinen at the deadline, um, <laughs> and. That didn't really work out too well. It it sort of cratered, cratered their cap management at the end of the year. They ran into a bevy of injuries. So Phaneuf, who was still actually pretty good at the time, right. uh, went into the playoffs injured. So all these things kind of came together to to undermine what should have been a really good season. So I think people might be kind of surprised when you know we say that this Flames team is really good, is at least you know legitimately good, or for consideration of being good right now. Just because if you look at you know their sort of portfolio or their or their profile this season in totality, it doesn't really look that impressive. I mean, they're hovering just over the fifty percent mark in terms of shot attempts for the year, and you know they're sitting in a wild card spot right now. But there's a couple teams there that are right on their heels, and I think you know being just a few points ahead of a team like the Canucks or something like that isn't necessarily you know something to write home about but it's it's one of those things where if you look recently i think i my cutoff point is kind of after the christmas break it's been nearly a month now since then they've played 11 games in that time and, and they're third in the league at uh at score adjusted any pretty much either course or fender or whatever you want to sort by i mean they're in that top tier with the bruins the kings the capitals and and kind of surprisingly the oilers as well so i guess the the logical question is sort of what's changed in that time to kind of spur this dramatic increase in underlying performance that they've gone through yeah as you say you know if you look at the season in total or an aggregate it's it's not terribly impressive and a big part of that is for the first at least four to six weeks of the season they were awful i mean they came out and they didn't look like nobody on the team looked like they knew how to play hockey in the nhl um all of their stars came out just ice cold uh, the goaltending was sub 900 and the special teams were the worst in the league so it, <laughs> everything went wrong to start the season it looked like they made a terrible mistake with glenn gulletson and the new hires um mm-hmm. And it looked like it was going to be another race to the bottom for the, for the Flames. But since then, they've, they've really turned it around. And some of it is just, you know, the goaltending regressing back to uh, what it should be. And, and ironically, it's Chad Johnson kind of leading that charge. But even Brian Elliott has been much better um, relative to a very terrible start for him. Mm-hmm. The special teams went from worst in the league, and they've been some of the best in the league, at least in terms of results. And even the the shooting totals have improved for both of them. So uh, it, all that stuff kind of, I would say, that's the coach getting to know the team, the team getting to know the coach, and, and things just starting to come together. And outside of all that, in terms of roster management and decisions, um, you see the back line becoming one of the best possession uh, units in the league, yeah. uh, despite some really tough circumstances. And, you know, it's you started out the year with, you know, Monaghan and Goudreau kind of getting power versus power because Gullitson came in and assumed those were the two best forwards on the team, you know, justifiably. Right. Um, and he's kind of had to figure out over a period of time that, the, you know, the, those are good offensive players, but your best you know, all around line, that's not it. So he's juggled that 
those sort of circumstances, managing the roster a little better, and uh, it's starting to come together. Yeah, I want to apologize to uh, Michael Backlund, his friends, his family, and I guess all of his supporters out there. A, a few weeks back, I did a midseason awards show with Chris Johnson, and we were discussing the you know the guys in the in the consideration for the Selkie Trophy, and we kind of went through. Um, sort of just the old reliable names but we I just kind of total brain fart and didn't mention Backlund and I think that he's right up there he might actually be the favorite at this point for me just I mean if you look at the season he's having it's you know he's it's funny obviously for an award that's technically like the best defensive forward a lot of you you need to have a certain baseline level of offensive production to to get legitimate consideration for it and he's kind of getting the counting stats at this point but I mean the underlying metrics are phenomenal at this point and and I think that you know it's not necessarily surprising to anyone that's kind of been following him for the past few years that he's this good because he's been doing it a little bit under the radar for a while now and and Michael Froelich similarly is is a guy who's been very underrated and sort of just constantly has has good shot metrics and good totals in that regard but I think that you know the surprising part of that line has been has been Matthew Kachuk have you kind of just been blown away by by his performance so far? Yeah, I didn't expect anything like this, and, and no reasonable person should expect anything like this out of a, a, a teenage rookie in the NHL. Usually, when guys make the leap that early, um, there's one or two things that's carrying them along. Maybe they're, they score a lot when they first make it in, like Sean Monaghan, and, and the rest of their game needs some sort of um, tuning, but um, he seems to have leapt into the league more or less fully formed. Um, I think his offense may get better but i mean he's already a, a really really good two-way player which is really rare i, I mean I'd, I'd actually like to see him away from backland and fro league just for <laughs> just for the sake of experimentation to see what he can do uh with lesser sort of two-way players and and know what what the chemistry and alchemy is there but for right now it's it's been tremendous yeah i mean just you know, the other day we were talking about a guy like Joe Colborn, and I mean, if you look at his numbers with Froelich and Backlund last year, and then look at his sort of minutes with everyone else, and then how he's performed this year in Colorado, I mean, you get a pretty good idea of sort of what th- th- what those two guys are able to do in terms of bringing the th- a third guy along with them. But I think just watching Kachuk, he's been a revelation for me personally, because, you know, he came into the league with the name and draft pedigree, and, we, and he figured he'd be one of the more NHL-ready prospects in, the, in this past year's draft just because of sort of how physically mature him and his game already were. But what's blown me away is, I mean, he's so incredibly skilled in these tight spaces around the net. And it's also just how fantastic he is in the neutral zone carrying the puck in. Like, all of it is just sort of coming together. And, you know, we obviously knew that he'd be kind of like his father, sort of an otherworldly pest getting under people's skin. And Mm -hmm. he's he's, he's drawn 23 penalties already this year, which only McDavid and Ehlers have drawn more. And and they sort of use their kind of more conventional blazing speed and skill to draw those, whereas Kachuk has really done a good job of just sort of... uh, just just irritating the opposition so I, I think that you know it's gonna be tough for him to it's gonna be next to impossible at this point to leapfrog austin matthews in the calder trophy discussion just because of sort of the other early season he's having himself but with line a out now and guys like waranski and Provorov slowing down from their toward early season start i think that there's a legitimate argument to say that like the matthew kachuk is the second in line right now in terms of the being the best rookie this season yeah i definitely think so and and it probably is not going to happen now, but down the road, if if other metrics and other results, aside from you know really great offense, be, uh, start to matter in these sort of races, 
Um, if that was true this year, I think Kachuk would be the favorite because it's really hard to argue against. I think the last time I looked, he had the best relative possession rate in the entire league. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's playing in some of the toughest circumstances. You can you can talk about it even strength. So, I mean, it, the scoring is, is great, and it's but it's almost secondary to what he is driving in Calgary right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they're, you know, pretty much any metric you sort by in terms of shots and stuff like that, it's like, it's that line and it's like, you know, Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand and David Pasternak and it's, it's, it's the, the kind of names you'd come to, come to expect to be up there. And, and so they're, they're keeping pretty impressive company. I think that, you know, that line's been amazing and, and the Flames have needed every single bit of it because beyond that, I think, it's been a little bit of a struggle. I mean, you mentioned early on how their top guys were underperforming and, you know, Johnny Goodrow's obviously off the pace he was at last year, at least where he was kind of clipping at a, at a point per game. And, you know, aside from the injury that kept him out at the start of the year, it's pretty clear that he, you know, he's going to be fine. He's still awesome. He hasn't just lost his skill all of a sudden. Like I, I wouldn't be worried about him moving forward, but the, the two logical questions kind of following up on that are, can they find a third guy to, to play with him and Monaghan? Because I, I don't think that Alex Chasson is that guy. I mean, he, he, you know, the Ottawa Senators who are sorely needing any offense they can get from, from their forwards were just eager to give him away for peanuts the, the, this summer. So, I mean, he's clearly not the long-term answer there. And, and beyond that, I mean, should we even just take it as a given that Monaghan should automatically just be playing those minutes with Goodrow? Or, or do you think that, are you kind of skeptical of whether that is a pairing that should be playing together moving forward? Uh, they have, they actually haven't been uh, for a big portion recently. Yeah. He's been moving Goudreau around a little bit uh, with Bennett, who is actually a healthy scratch tonight. So Goudreau is supposedly going to play with Matt Stajan mm-hmm. to start. So he, he started the season out with that unit, and he went back to them a couple times just based on their, you know, some of their success previously. But uh, it it may come to the point where, yeah, that that, that isn't a duo moving forward. Um, we'll see what the rest of the season brings. But uh, as you say, the real challenge here is one finding someone on the right side who may be able to support either Monahan or Goudreau and Monahan at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I somewhat suspect that the team thought that might be Troy Brower this year. Yes. Uh, that was a bad bet, and we made that very clear on Flames Nation during the summer. Um, so, And he hasn't stuck there at all. He's kind of bounced around. He still plays with Monaghan a bit more, but um, he's kind of been up and down the lineup with goats and trying to find a fit for him so yeah i mean just watching him at the start of the year it looked like he was just like skating in in, in, in quicksand like he, he just couldn't i feel like he couldn't keep up physically with the pace goodrill wanted or needs to play at to be successful yeah and and brower has kind of been that middle rotation you know ideally he should be on a third or fourth line at even strength just looking at his results going back a few years and given his you know his speed and his age um, if you're signing Troy Brower as you did this summer, you should probably be signing a guy you expect to be playing, you know, 12 to 15 minutes a night, maybe doing some power play work where he has his best results, but certainly not trying to keep up with your two young stars facing other teams' best defenders and stuff. Well, the, the reason why I brought up, you know, Goodrow Goudre- or Monaghan in the same breath there was just because I think that for the past couple of years, I mean, if you weren't really paying attention, you just sort of thought they were just like a 1A, 1B kind of a package deal. And they were playing a lot together. I think that since Goodrow came in the league, Monaghan spent like 65 or so percent of his five on five minutes with him. So it's pretty clear that, you know, they were just 
playing together pretty frequently, but I feel like, you know, before the Flames went out and just handed him a seven year, $45 million contract this summer, I feel like they probably should have vetted this a little bit more where they split them up and actually made sure that Monaghan was, you know, worthy of that sort of money as opposed to just being kind of a, a glorified passenger that was just riding shotgun and, and benefiting from playing with such a dynamic player like Goudreau. Yeah, and that was um, part of my concern as well. I, I, I think I've written more than one article over the season saying, you know, looking at Monaghan, looking at Goudreau, and looking at them together and separate. And, and Monaghan's results always kind of dropped yeah. away from Goudreau. And some of that you have to take in consideration his first season in the NHL when he made it as a rookie and was you know, a center on a bad team. So, But even if you took out that season, you know, the, the, there was a dichotomy there where Goudreau's results didn't fluctuate too much most of the time, but Monaghan's certainly dropped. So uh, I think the team kind of made the bet based on, one, he seems to be an above-average shooter, which mm-hmm. is, you know, that's a talent that is expensive to acquire and keep in the NHL, fair enough. But I think they're also betting on development and yes. just... A good shooter can score. If he improves, then you know we've made a good bet. And and part of the issue this year is that hasn't really happened. Um, he's been coming around just recently after you know several months of of really lackluster two way play. And um, we'll see what happens for the rest of the of the uh, of the year. But he's still hyper sheltered. Um, he's one of the most sheltered forwards on the teams, at least in terms of zone starts and stuff. So. Um, they may just have a really good shooter who can't really drive play mm-hmm. in Shanahan. Well, and, you know, as you mentioned, like goals are very expensive to come by in this league and tough to get your hands on. And he's should also acknowledge he's only 22 years old, so it's very conceivable that he could improve as as, as he gets older and kind of reaches his, his physical prime here in the coming years. So I'm, re- I'm re- you know, reserving my judgment and willing to change my stance on him as a player if, if the underlying performance changes. But I just thought it was always kind of a bit hasty or a bit curious to just jump into that sort of a contract without actually kind of seeing what you actually fully had in him and and i don't know it's it's going to be interesting to see how he does moving forward but i mean you mentioned sam bennett there as well and he's going to be a healthy scratch tonight we're recording this on a on a thursday afternoon i mean i'm obviously still a big fan of his talent and his future and and you are as well i'm pretty sure you know you're on the record saying you're you're, if you had to take bennett or or monahan you would still take bennett at this point yeah it's i've sort of I don't know. I'm a little less um, big on that opinion at this point, just because <laughs> you know he came out and had, a, I think, had a pretty good rookie season. Uh, there was a few games where he was uh, definitely a difference maker for the Flames. He came with a, a tremendous resume, um, so I, I looked at him as, as a good bet. But this year, he has really he. He hasn't just run in place. He's sort of regressed, mm-hmm. especially over the last, say, 10 to 15 games. He's been one of the worst you know, possession players on the team, maybe the worst, at least the worst centerman for sure. Um, he seems very hesitant uh, about his game in the NHL right now, not sure how to execute. Uh, he's been punished uh, more than once this year by the coach for, for bad penalties. He's one of the guys on the team who just keeps taking penalties as you may or may not know the flames have gone from one of the least penalized teams in the league to one of the most penalized teams in the mm-hmm. league 
And some of that is obviously Matthew Kachuk being uh, a monster <laughs> of mayhem, but right. <laughs> um, Bennett is also one of the sort of the culprits of that. And um, without also driving play and scoring at a notable level, he sort of has become a liability. So I am still a believer in his talent um, and his tenacity. I think there's a he- really good base there, but uh, I need to see him turn it around at some point, at least by the end of the season, to to get back up to that optimistic level. Well, I mean, yeah, he's he leads the league in in penalties at five on five, and unlike Matthew Kachuk, he hasn't really been drawing them at you know no. a, a rate that's been matching that. So that's definitely a problem. He needs to uh, stay out of the penalty box. But it, the the thing about him is, like, I feel like heading into the season, um, I imagine that you know the Flames brass was sort of not necessarily banking on but maybe optimistically hopeful that he would be able to take that next step and sort of drive a third line maybe by himself or or with some help from from some line mates because i mean if if that came to fruition then all of a sudden you're you're cooking here i mean you've got those three lines we mentioned the backline line and if you know pretty much whoever goodrow plays whether it's probably going to wind up being pretty good so if, if bennett could sort of become an actual sort of driver himself that would all of a sudden make this team so much more more potent to play against yeah, that's for sure. I think if you ask most Flames fans heading into the season to drop their depth, depth chart and potential lines, and maybe if you talk to management as well, you probably would have had, you know, Goudreau and Monaghan as the top line, Bennett and someone else as a second line, and then Michael Backlund and, and Frolik as a third line. And uh, it's kind of been inverted <laughs> yeah. a little bit this year with, with the backland line coming out and, and you know, driving most of the results and everyone else kind of trying to figure out what to do in, in much more sheltered, uh, um, pastures. So, uh, the good news is, is, as you mentioned, the flames are, have really good shot metrics the last month or so. And part of that is it looks like Monahan and Goudreau are actually coming around too. They've been, uh, still relatively sheltered, but they're actually starting to outshoot the opposition and only Sam Bennett's kind of lagged behind. So right, as you right. say, if the Flames' young guys can figure it out, um, they're cooking. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, so, I mean, we mentioned some of the stuff that's happened that's caused that jump in underlying performance. I think the other thing that's coincided with it based on timeline is that, you know, they finally started properly using Dougie Hamilton. They they moved him up to play with Giordano, and now he's finally playing more than guys like Weidman and Eggland at 515, which wasn't the case for a large chunk of the start of the year, which was alarming and, and distressing to say the least. Um, what is it, what is it about this guy that seems to just, you know, throw people off for whatever reason? Because whenever I watch him play, like he's just one of these guys that, it seems that you know he does everything well it seems like he regardless of what your tastes in a player are or what your kind of go-to method of analysis is whether you're more of a number oriented guy or you know one of these old school guys that are just watching the game and, and relying on that like both seem to check out perfectly well for him like I, I don't understand why there's anyone in the world that isn't a huge Dougie Hamilton fan just in terms of him as the player of course yeah it's it's pretty baffling I can only speculate because I've I've mostly liked Hamilton here, of course. So there's maybe two things. So one, Hamilton is a big guy, but he doesn't necessarily play a big, mean game. And I, when I talk to a lot of, say, conventional or old school hockey people, that's probably the first thing 
they bring up. It's like, uh, there's this big guy out there, but he looks soft to me, you know, and looking soft is a huge no-no in, in the classic lexicon of, of grading player, players, right, especially defensemen. So there's that. And the other thing is, is he's more offensively adept than he is defensively, which isn't to say he's bad defensively, but um, sometimes when things aren't going well for him, he looks high risk mm-hmm. because of that sort of ratio of, of skill set. So at the start of this year and the start of, of his first season here in Calgary, things went really badly for him and, and for the team both times. So he looked like sort of a high risk kind of player that you have to be careful with. But the truth is um, he's moderately good defensively, but he's so good offensively that it almost doesn't matter. He, yes. He's driving, he's driving shots, he's driving plays and chance and goal differential. So uh, that's the bottom line. Yeah, that is the bottom line. I mean, he's, he's been immensely productive pretty much his entire career. So kind of just, all, all the other things you might kind of be concerned about or, or, or might put you off, it feels like that that should just be the uh, deciding factor. But okay, so if you're spin, if you're running the Flames, um, spinning it forward, how do you approach this trade deadline? Because let's assume that, you know, six weeks from now or whenever the deadline is, they're still hovering around the spot where, you know, they could conceivably jump into a, one of the three Pacific spots, but they're also holding on to a wild card and it looks like they could very well be a playoff team. Are you making any sort of moves right now, or are you kind of standing pat and just taking it into the summer and then going from there? I'm always cautious, or I always would be if I was a GM in the NHL approaching trade deadline just because of the auction sort of atmosphere and the the rising um, cost to play. But um, the the one thing I would definitely do is is be a seller, Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that I would go out and try to move Monaghan or something, but if anyone came calling and asking me about Derek England or Dennis Weidman or one of these sort of extra parts and they offered me anything for them, I would immediately say yes. Uh, it wouldn't matter where the Flames were um, in terms of standings. Sometimes you just you, know, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth, right? So I always go back to San Jose trading Doug, Doug, uh, Douglas Murray to Pittsburgh at the deadline for a couple second round picks that always blew me away and they were in a playoff spot at the time so well I mean even even you know from a Flames example like how they got a couple picks for Curtis Glencross that year they, yeah. they actually made the playoffs like that I thought that was one of the more underrated kind of just positive value added moves that we've seen in recent years at the deadline yeah but in terms of if they're going to buy um I would, I mean, their needs are obvious. We've kind of go, gone over them a little bit here. Another top six uh, winger, if possible. And I'd like uh, another top four defenseman to push Dennis Weidman down the, the rotation and, and push one of uh, England or Yerke Yokopaka out of, out of the lineup more or less permanently. That would definitely make life a little bit easier for the blue line. Yeah, yeah. I guess the problem with you know a top six scoring winger and a, a top four defenseman being your needs are that twenty nine other teams Everyone also needs. have those needs. So <laughs> it's uh, it kind of, that definitely kind of drives the uh, the auction prices up, as you mentioned. Uh, it, the reason why I said they're such an interesting team at the top of the show, beyond just the fact that you know they're playing good hockey now, is that you know those needs are so well defined. I feel like for a lot of other teams, there's a lot of holes and they could pretty much take help wherever they could get it for this Flames team. Like I feel like there are small little moves there without necessarily having to pay exorbitant prices that could make a big difference. Like I think even if, you know, just getting a guy like like even Redeem Verbata for example, just get peanut like could get whatever it takes to get him, which I imagine would be extremely minimal at this point as a rental. Like I feel like just 
putting him in a more of a kind of scoring offensively oriented role and, and not having to use a guy like Alex Chasson there would be a pretty massive difference. So I think just kind of small stuff like that could really help this team out. But the other thing that's interesting to me is that, you know, this is going to be a huge summer for them coming up because they have some serious money coming off the books. It's slightly over 8 million in cap space with Weidman and Eglund expiring. And those are two spots that, you know, if they could upgrade there, like they could arguably be having the best blue line in the league. And, you know, I, I, I think that, how they approach this summer is going to be very telling for what their future is going to look like moving forward. Yeah, for sure. Um, they have a lot of, I'm not going to say dead money, but bad money coming off the books. Mm -hmm. Um, and how true living reinvests that will go a long way to determine the success of this rebuild, uh, moving forward. I mean, if, if they can land one or two guys who, who bring value, just even the way Michael Froelich has and, and not another, a couple of England's or Brow Browers, it'll make a world of difference. Well, and I think the other thing is um, with the looming expansion draft, I mean, looking at this team, I, I don't necessarily think they have seven forwards and three defensemen that they have to keep or, or eight combined skaters. Like, I feel like, you know, maybe there'd be an opportunity here where they could take another player off of another team that's in a number crunch and kind of get them at a discount rate. Like, I feel like stuff like that is also going to make this coming trade deadline so much more fascinating than, than years past. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how the expansion draft monkeys with the, the trade market here in the next little while. Um, as you say, I would, I'm hesitant about adding any more blue liners just mm -hmm. because i want them to protect the the obvious top three of brody giordano and hamilton but up front yeah they they have some options especially if they're willing to wave uh troy brower which maybe maybe not i i kind of hope they do uh, make a, expose him in the in the draft and he gets taken just because i think he's gonna be bad money moving forward but uh yeah it's it's gonna be sort of a fascinating little little experiment here yeah i mean at the same time like I understand completely what you're saying about the blue line and how you don't want to add any other guys and you just roll with these three. But like, you know, if they are going to be a playoff team this this year, I think if they added another guy that could play with Brody and sort of bump Weidman down to more of a third pairing type guy, like all of a sudden you could just roll those two pairings for like 50 to 55 minutes of a playoff game. And I feel like that all of a sudden just makes them so much more frightening to, to deal with in a, in a short series like that. Oh yeah, for sure. I was I was speaking from a expansion draft right, right. point of view, but yeah, yeah, the deadline. If even if you could pick up, say, Cody Franzen from mm -hmm. the Buffalo Sabers for next to nothing, I mean, he's not a superstar or anything, but I bet you he's better than Weidman in the top four. Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and then there'd be that trickle down effect, right? Weidman moves down to minutes more well suited for where his skills are at at this point of his career, and then it bumps a guy like Derek Englund out, and all of a sudden that's. It's all adding up. Um, I guess the one other sort of thing that we haven't really touched on yet with this team, another uh, kind of decision that they're going to have to make here coming up in the next few months is, would you be more leaning towards keeping Brian Elliott or Chad Johnson or maybe neither? Yeah, that's a super tough question. And I, I put up a sort of a, a post on it recently and I, I didn't come to any conclusion I just kind of asked the community on Flames Nation what would you do just because you know the Tree Living came into this season with a very clear plan and it was reasonable and rational you go in with Brian Elliott as the putative starter you, you have Chad Johnson as you know a, a battle-tested backup who who can provide relief and 
redundancy, and then you have John Gillies in the AHL, hope where you hope he can kind of start looking like an NHL starter in the next year or so. And you know, none of that has come to fruition. Brian Elliott's had one of his worst seasons to date uh, in the last, I think, six years since he left Ottawa. You have Chad Johnson kind of becoming the uh, the incumbent starter here, although it's it kind of jockeys back and forth day by day and then John Gillies struggling in the AHL so there's there's absolutely no clarity in the crease for Calgary and I, I don't even I don't even want to speculate at this point what they can do or what they should do it's, it's going to take I think the rest of the the year just to see how it shakes out yes yeah, it's, it's tough because with goalies you never want to be sort of picking up the tab and buying high on them and I feel like Chad Johnson's value is at an all-time high here whereas it's quite conceivable that like I still am a fan of Brian Elliott and his game. And I think that it's possible that, you know, his shaky performance to start this year, cost him quite a bit of money uh, this, this summer. So if you could get him for a cheaper price, all of a sudden that would be a pretty enticing option. Yeah, it definitely could be. And it'll depend on what both players are looking for as unrestricted free agents this summer. And my speculation is that both of them are going to look for some sort of commitment from whoever they sign with, because they've kind of both been kicking around as one B options or backup options. And, and, uh, Chad Johnson's 30, uh, Elliot's going to be 31 or 32. And they're kind of coming to the end of, of the line where they can, they can cash in and, and, become a guaranteed starter and get starter money so yeah ideally the the flames would convince both of them to stick around on reasonable contracts for a year or two just because i like the redundancy um but that may be a pipe dream yeah all right well um i guess i I feel like we kind of covered it all i think that you know the takeaway from this is i think we're both pretty high on this team right I, i think you know i was willing to believe that they'd be better heading into the season than they were last year or the year before but uh, I've, I've, I have to say I've been kind of pleasantly surprised by how well they've been playing lately here. Yeah, it's especially after their start as a fan, watching them come out and, and stumble so badly, fall on their face, and it kind of got the feeling of, here we go again, <laughs> right? You know, who, who's going to be in the top five for the draft this year? <laughs> right. But um, to have them sort of turn it around and, and have the January that they've had, even despite two just dreadful performances against the Winnipeg Jets and New Jersey Devils. They have these sort of weird outings that are sticking out like a sore thumb. You know, even with those they have great underlying numbers and it looks like it's starting to starting to come together. Yeah, and I think that, you know, they've fortunately got the the toughest thing locked down, which is sort of the the core, the nucleus, the the building blocks. Now it, it, their future will be sort of reliant upon whether they can surround those guys in a smart and, and cost efficient way and you know hopefully avoid locking themselves down to england and brower type contracts and you know avoiding letting guys like like paul byron and josh Juris just go for no reason and not really replacing them with anything other than kind of step steps back right like if we, all of a sudden if they had another fourth line here that was that was driving possession as well like we'd be so much more optimistic about them so it's kind of small stuff like that that you know seems small and irrelevant at the time but it all kind of adds up and and could really make a difference moving forward yeah and they have you know pretty much the ultimate assets um in the back on line who's doing what you know a Patrice Bergeron line is doing in, in Boston and then you have a, a first pairing like Giordano and Hamilton that most teams in the league would kill for if if they can do something they should be able to do something with that kind of base to work on um 
and it's going to be interesting to see if they can. Yeah. All right, Ken, um, plug some stuff. Where can people find you online and uh, check out your writing and all your thoughts on Twitter and all that stuff? On Twitter, it's just my name, so Kent uh, underscore Wilson. Mm-hmm. And then I, I primarily write for Flames Nation these days, although sometimes my stuff will pop up in uh, the Calgary Herald or other places that ask me to write now and then. Well, I, uh, yeah, I highly recommend checking out your stuff and following you on Twitter. And uh, let's try and get you back on as the as the season goes along, maybe around the trade deadline if uh, if things start heating up and, and the Flames start facing some of these more interesting decisions uh, in the present. We can kind of kind of recalibrate where, where we're at with them. Yeah, thanks, man. And the other thing I'd like to come on and talk about is how bad the Vancouver Canucks are. So if, <laughs> if you ever have a, <laughs> a show on that, yeah, I'll, I'll be a guest for sure. Absolutely. All right, man. Talk soon. Sounds good. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast.